Heavenly Father, um, as we begin a new series and as we begin a, a journey really deep into one of the most amazing books in your scriptures, I pray that you would ready our hearts you ready my heart, Father God, as I, as I try to communicate what you've shown me, that you'd remove error from my mouth and that you would cause us in this place together as your church to hear your voice, not the voice of a man, not the voice of, of flesh, but Father God, your spirit's voice through the scriptures and that we would receive them and believe with gladness. Help us to do this this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, well, this is the, uh, it's the first Sunday of the month, and the first Sunday of the year, and the first Sunday of the decade. Right? Am I right about that? Okay, good. <laughs> um, and so it's fitting that we begin our time today looking at something new, something brand new. And so today we're going to embark on a journey through the gospel of John, the gospel of John. Over the last few years, uh, if you've been with us, we've gone through several books. We went through Colossians initially, then we went through the book of Ruth, and then we went through the book of Jonah. But we haven't gone through a gospel yet. And so now is the time. Today is the beginning of the, the first of many um, series that, God willing, we will have in this book. Um, and uh, as we travel through this book, which, I mean, what's staggering about this is the book is 21 chapters, and uh, it took a year and a half to get through Colossians. And so whatever that means, if God provides us the time as we go through this, uh, the length that we will be in this book is uh, staggering to me. And I spent the last few months of 2019 really contemplating that. Do, I really, do we really want to go into something this big? Uh, and then specifically the Gospel of John. But I, I felt repeatedly drawn to this book. I've always loved this gospel. And uh, during the last few months of last year, I felt like this was where God wanted us to be. Uh, so we are here. The Gospel of John is, is very unique and very distinct, especially even over and against the other Gospels that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we generally refer to as the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are very similar in language. They're very similar in tone, very similar in their chronology. But John, in his Gospel, has this intimate and personal perspective when he writes the biography of Jesus, the Gospel, um, that we're going to jump into. When he writes about the life of Jesus Christ, we're looking at someone who was there at ground zero, who was there with Jesus, one of the closest disciples to Jesus, along with his brother James and Simon Peter. And we see that they're close to Jesus throughout all the Gospels, but John wrote this Gospel, and it's very clear that he has a peculiar relationship with Jesus, a deep and intimate uh, friendship with Jesus. It's not just geography I'm talking about, not just proximity, though he's around Jesus all the time. In fact, at one point in this gospel, he's leaning his head against Jesus at a dinner table, 
like a son would do to a father when he's kind of tired. And, uh, and so he was close to Jesus. And, and multiple times throughout this gospel, John refers to himself not as John, not as John the disciple, but as the disciple who Jesus loved. That's how he self-identifies. I'm a disciple that Jesus loves. I mean, think about that. He's like, you don't need to know my name. You don't need to know what my occupation is. The most important fact about me is that Jesus loves me. It's the most important fact out of all the other facts about my life. So they were close. But John doesn't just give us a personal, intimate look at Christ. He also tells a gospel with an epic and grand scale. The scope of this gospel is unprecedented. We're going to see this next Sunday as we begin the first few verses. He doesn't begin the gospel with Jesus' birth. He doesn't begin the gospel with a genealogy leading up to Jesus' birth. He begins the gospel in eternity past, where Jesus Christ is with God and is God himself. That's where John begins. This book is immense in its scale and its scope and its epicness. And one of the reasons for this fact is that in this gospel, John doesn't just provide um, the events that happened in Jesus's life. John, and this is really interesting about how he goes about this, tells us why Jesus said and did the things that he said and did. The other gospels mainly engage the facts. Jesus did this. He said this. He went there. And allow us as the readers, as the witnesses of the gospel to sort of understand what he's getting at. But John goes way further. John unpacks these things and tells us what it means for Jesus to be who he is, what it means for Jesus to do the things that he does in this gospel. And John is pulling back the veil so that we can see Christ with this incredible clarity, this depth that we, um, that we only see glimpses of in the other gospels. And so today, as we start our journey, um, we're not going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1. Interestingly enough, we're going to begin... Um, and God willing, we'll be there next week. Today, I want to answer that question, the most basic, fundamental question about the book of John, and that is, why did John write this? Why did he write this book? What was his purpose? What's so important about this gospel that he needed to write it down, and we needed to have it for antiquity and now for us to read 2,000 years later. Later, Why did he write this? And we find the answer to that question at the very end of this book, John 20, verses 30 and 31. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, um, grab them and turn with me to the end of the book of John to start our series in the book of John. John 20, verses 30 through 31. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that he wrote in the previous 20 chapters, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this statement, as you can see here, is kind of like an annotation in his gospel, a sidebar in his gospel, and it comes at the heels of an event just in the verses immediately preceding this. And the event that I'm talking about is Jesus and Thomas encountering, encountering uh, uh, each other after the resurrection. So uh, you know the story. You've heard of this story before. Thomas um, is this disciple who doubts um, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's the last one to whom Jesus has uh, appeared And he's telling the other disciples, listen, I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to believe. It is impossible for me to believe that that man I saw on that tree is alive. It's just not possible until Jesus shows up. Then it becomes very possible. And what's interesting about this exchange between Jesus and Thomas is what Jesus says just before the annotation that John is going to add here, Jesus says in verse 29, he's telling Thomas this, have you believed or have you believed because you have seen me or as you saw me physically? Blessed, he says, are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is a remarkable statement by Jesus because what he's saying here, what he's talking about here really is us. He's talking about you and me. We don't have the luxury of being able to feel the nail prints in his hands like Thomas did. And Jesus in John 20, 29 is blessing us 2,000 years before we even exist. And John provides this annotation immediately after. We can go back to the, uh, the other passage um, And he says here that uh, in this annotation, Jesus did many other signs. He did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that aren't recorded here. In fact, if we were to go to the last verse in the gospel, the entire gospel, John says that if it was even possible, if it was even possible to record all that Jesus did, um, we wouldn't have enough, there wouldn't be enough space in the world. There, There isn't enough space to record all that Christ did and accomplished in the world. There wouldn't be enough books for it, which, I mean, at first blush, that seems like it's hyperbole. He's probably exaggerating for effect, but John is dead serious about this. He is dead serious. There isn't enough room in the world to talk about Christ. There isn't. And for the humble reader who comes to this book, from beginning to end, and goes all the way to the end, and has this vision of who Christ really is, you recognize it's not hyperbole. It's not hyperbole at all. This is true. For Jesus Christ, there simply is not enough room in our world or 10,000 worlds to talk about all that he's done and all that he is. But John says he did write some of what Jesus said and did And that's why we have this gospel to begin with. And he tells us, I wrote it for a reason. I wrote it specifically for a reason. And that reason is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's reason for writing 
anything that Jesus said, anything that Jesus did. And if we're skeptical, like if we're looking at this from a very sort of postmodern, skeptical perspective and, and, and looking at his, his statement here, we would probably say from a skeptical point of view that his goal has tainted his ability to give a, a, a statement about Christ. He, he's clearly showing his cards here um, and um, that's tainted his ability to be a neutral witness and to tell us neutrally what happened. And John probably recognizes that and would say, I don't really care. I don't really care what you think about me. The only thing I care about is what you think about Jesus. That's the only thing I care about. He is completely fine with laying it all out and saying, here's my cards. I want you to believe. I want you to believe. I didn't write this book for your entertainment. I didn't write this book for a historical record for the history books. Don't care about those. In fact, he would say, I don't give a rip about any of that stuff. What I want for you, those things are infinitely unimportant. What I want for you is this one thing, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you believe that he's the Christ, that you would believe that he's the son of the living God. That is infinitely important, and that's why I wrote the book. And this is John's goal for us today. This is John's goal for us every Sunday that we open this text up. And before we, we dive deep into these two verses, and that's what we're going to be doing today, I want to step back a little bit and, and just make a broader observation about, about all of the Bible. John is very transparent about his goal. He's very transparent about the fact that, that he wants us to believe by reading his book in these 66 books. But what we need to understand is that this isn't limited to John's gospel. This isn't limited to John himself. He is providing us in these two verses a glimpse why the entire Bible exists. This is not just an explanation about the gospel of John, why that was written. This is an explanation of all, why all the entirety of Scripture from front to back, was recorded and handed down to us. It's for this same reason. The Bible, every single page in it, is all seated and postured so that at the end of it, we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that we would believe that Jesus is the Son of God. All of the Bible, this is its focus, ultimately, even if it's talking about secondary things, is that we would believe this. It all points to Jesus. And we see this stated throughout the New Testament, all over the place. We see um, explicit statements of this, that this is what the Bible is for. This is what all of Scripture is for. But one of the most explicit statements, one of the most clear statements that this is the purpose of the entire Bible is in 1 Peter, ironically, the verse immediately after the text we spent a month on in December, that passage, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9, verse 10 through 12 tell us why it is all of the Bible is pointed at Jesus. Let me read it to you. Uh, Peter, you remember, is talking about joy, inexpressible joy that we get from being united with Christ Jesus, and he refers to that joy as our salvation. And then he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating 
when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, all of the Old Testament, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the New Testament. That's Old Testament and New Testament. Peter is telling us the entirety of our Bible, old and new, was written to hold out the reality of Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate purpose of this book. We're not in the dark about what this book is here for. It's for this purpose. And what this means is that it's not just John's purpose. It's not just Peter's purpose. This is the purpose of God. This is God's purpose in inspiring this book. God has given us his word so that we would believe. This is not a, and I don't know the context that you grew up in or or how you experienced Christianity. This is not a religious textbook, mainly. This is not a a code of, of moral ethics, mainly. It has that in it. And this isn't just a series of historic teachings that are helpful to navigate our lives, mainly. This book is a window into reality. And that reality is Jesus. It's called Jesus Christ. And so the very reason we have this book in our hands is because God desires us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is his son. Think about this for a moment. God is not neutral about how you receive this news. He's not neutral about the purpose of this book. He's not neutral about you or me. He desires all of us to be set free from the darkness of unbelief and to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this book is his means for accomplishing that end. Through words and sentences and paragraphs, that tell us truth, that tell us reality. And so before we begin our journey, this is the reason why we need to look back at uh, John 20, verses 30 through 31. So let's put that back up on the screen. We need to look at this and we need to really understand what is the goal at the end of the day. We get to the end of this book, a year, two years, three years, however many years down the road, what is the goal? What needs to have happened in our hearts? What do we need to see? And so I want to ask three questions about this text in our time today. The first one is this. What is it exactly that John is telling us to believe? What is he asking us to believe by reading this book? That's question number one. Question number two. Why do we need to believe it? Like, what does it mean to believe it? Why should we have to believe it? And question number three is, how does he make this happen? Like, how exactly can we believe this? That, that John's book would actually accomplish this purpose. How does he expect us to simply believe something he's saying? Many people say things. I don't believe all of them. Why does he anticipate? What's the warrant in him that says, I'm writing this, I'm confident that people are going to believe this? And so let's read it again one more time. John 20, verses 30 through 31. John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe 
that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the Bible, John, the Gospel of John, and, and all of the Bible is written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we would have life in his name. That's why we have a Bible in our hands, to do that, to believe. So the answer to the first question, what is it that we need to believe, is first we need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. We need to believe that he's the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. That's what Christ means in Greek. He is the Savior of the world. That's the first thing that John's calling us to believe. The second is that Jesus isn't just the Savior of the world. He isn't just the Christ. He's also the Son of God, which means that he is divine. He is the same substance, the same nature as God, the creator of the universe. And so this is what John wants us to believe. And, and, and he's not just talking about two facts that he wants us to agree with intellectually. He wants us to agree with it for sure. But he's not just talking about two facts that we should intellectually assent to. He is talking about an experience when he says the word believe that is much deeper than simply agreeing with facts. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to know, first off, that we need a Christ to begin with. If he's the Christ, then we need a Christ. We need a Savior. And therefore, to believe that Jesus is the Christ is to know that we are in need of a Savior and we are sinners. We are broken people who need to be rescued. And John says that Jesus is the Savior that we need. He is the Savior that we need. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work that Christ did in reconciling us to God through the cross. And it is to receive Christ, receive Jesus as that Savior. That's what John's talking about here. And the second thing, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God isn't to believe that Jesus is merely a man or merely a teacher that got a few things right, or even to believe that Jesus is half man, half God, which is a, a, a pagan invention based on, on human reasoning. John is, is and it's impossible to be half God. Think about it for a second. If God is infinite, eternal, and perfect, and you cut that in half you still have infinite, eternal, and perfection. So there is no halfway um, of having God. To be the Son of God is to be God himself, is to be God, is to possess all the, the, the things that God possesses. And what this means is that if Jesus really is the Son of God and he is God himself, which we will see with great clarity next week, it is God himself who entered human history to fix the brokenness. It is God himself who went to the cross to die for our sins and for all those who would believe in him. God wasn't a passive bystander waiting for salvation to happen. He was in the middle of all of it, right in the middle of all of it, reconciling in the form of his son, reconciling the world to himself through the blood of the cross. God was involved in that. 
And this is, these two realities are what John wants us to, to believe, what he wants us to receive and hold fast. They're not empty facts. They're not just a list of historical events that he wants us to agree with. He wants us to receive these realities and embrace them in our hearts as true, as part of our lives. He wants them to be real for us. You can, you can have any number of facts in your head. That doesn't make it real to you. There's a way in which he wants this to be the most real thing to you in the world and for you to treasure it because there's nothing more important to him than that. Which brings us to the second question. Second question is, why does John want us to believe this stuff? Like, why? What's so important about believing that Jesus is the Christ? What's so important about believing that Jesus is the Son of God? And John tells us why in verse 31. He says that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is why we need to believe. So that we may have life in his name. Life in the name of Jesus. Now, what does John mean by life here? He obviously doesn't mean natural life that everyone in the world has already. He's talking about something more than that something that goes beyond just simply breathing air, beyond simply just having intellectual capacities of sentience. He's going far beyond that, and you know this reality. It's something that we call eternal life. It's throughout the scriptures. In fact, you may have heard this verse before, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, in his son, should not perish, but have eternal life. I'm guessing you've heard this verse before. Take a wild shot in the dark. Um, Most people in the West have heard this, this verse. And this is an essential definition of what believing will bring us, eternal life. And so what is eternal life? What is it at its most basic Level. Well, John 17 tells us what this is. Jesus is praying to his Father as he's heading to the cross, and he's praying for his disciples, his people, those people who trust in him. And he says this, verse, uh, I think it's verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So this is eternal life according to Jesus. Before we talk about anything else that you might have in your mind about what eternal life might look like, this is the main thing. Truly knowing God, which means to not have this life is to be cut off from knowing him in this way, from knowing your creator, your maker, and Jesus Christ. In fact, Without having this life, it is impossible to know God in any real saving way. And so knowing God and knowing Christ is, in an intimate, personal way, is having eternal life. And when you do, when you have eternal life, when you have it, John 8, 12 tells us that part of this life is freedom from sin. All the ways in which you are inclined to be selfish and do things for yourself, you are made free from it. You may not experience the fullness of that freeness immediately. In fact, you won't until you die and go and be with him. 
but you will experience it in measure. And so part of it is freedom from sin. And John eleven twenty seven 27 will tell us that it's not only freedom from sin, from the darkness of sin, it is freedom from the consequences of sin, namely death. It is freedom from death, which is where we get the, the language for eternal life, not perishing, according to John 3.16. So it's freedom from sin, freedom from the consequences of sin. And John 6.35 tells us stunningly that those who have this life never thirst and never get hungry. He's talking about a greater reality than simply eating food. He's talking about never thirsting and never hungering for anything but what God gives you. To say with David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I have everything I need. He's going to provide everything I need. And the reason that we have that satisfaction when we have this eternal life is because we have Jesus himself. And according to Jesus, when we have him, we have the very joy that he has. Listen to this passage here from John 15. Jesus says to his disciples, these things I have spoken to you. So everything I've told you, my disciples, and really we could take all of this book. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The goal, all of those things I just mentioned to you ultimately serve for us to enjoy God. Knowing God, freedom from sin, freedom from, from death, um, satisfaction in God, all of those things point to one end, that we would have the very joy that God has, that we would have it, that we would experience the fullness of joy in Christ. This is what John is after. When he says, by believing you may have life, he's taking his arms, he's wrapping them around all of these realities. He's saying, this is what life is. This is what eternal life is. It's to have these things. And so this is why the gospel of John was written. This is why the Bible was written. It's so that we would have these realities, that we would know God and experience this life, this joy, and that our joy in God would be full and forever. But those two questions... If you spend any time in Sunday school, you know those answers already. The third question is much harder because it's not explicitly given to us in those, th those two verses, 30 and 31. And that question is, how in the world does God do this for us? Like, how in the world does that happen? Like, how does God bring about faith in our hearts so that we look at this book and we say, that's true. This book is true. Like, how does that happen? Um, and, and, and I'm not just talking about believing it once or, or maybe like agreeing with it in a conversation with somebody. I'm talking about believing it in all the ways that we discussed for all of your life. Like till the very last breath, trusting in what this book says and believing it till the very end. And how, do we, how does that happen? So that's the question. How does that happen? And the answer is, that the reason it happens is that God is the one speaking these words. God is the one saying them. Listen to Jesus in John 6, verse 63. He tells us how it is that words on a page cause us 
to believe. This is what he says to his disciples. And let me give you a context here. Jesus has just said some outrageous things and people are running away from him in droves. They are walking away from him in John 6 in droves. Did a few miracles, said them some things people didn't like, they're gone. He was looking back at his 12 disciples. They're going to stay with him. But then he says, why they're going to stay with him? Why are these disciples going to stay with him? And he says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh has no help at all. That's why people are running. That's why they're going away. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Spirit and life. The words that Jesus has spoken in Scripture and the words that God has spoken from Genesis all the way to Revelation are spirit and life. This isn't an ordinary book. It's not an ordinary book. It's not a normal book because God is the one who is talking through it and in it. God is using his word. When we read scripture, we come to it humbly and we hear the words, God is using his word as an instrument in the hands of the spirit, his spirit, to cause hearts that are unbelieving and resistance to be brought to faith. This is not, it's not a book just about stories in abstract concepts. This is a book that speaks of a reality more real than anything in this world, anything in this world. A reality that's so powerful that when we see it with the eyes of our hearts, when God removes the blinders by his Holy Spirit and we see it for the first time, it grips us. And we know, we know it's true. The glory and the beauty and the value of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, when we really see it, it dominates our view. It captivates our hearts. It causes us to know and to enjoy God. And if you've seen it, or if you've seen him in it, you know that this is not just a book. You know like once you see him, you know, this is not a book. This is far more than that. This is truth. This is objective truth. In a world where there are 10,000 peddlers of fiction, this is real. And the reason I, I can have total confidence in saying this to you is because at the center of, a, of this book, of all this book talks about, there's an event. An event that changed everything. And I'm talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. The reason he died, the reason he came into this world and died, what he purchased, what he bought with his own blood is, is the reason why everything changed. The death of Jesus Christ to pay for our sins, the penalty of our sins, is in itself the greatest act of love ever committed in history, period. There isn't anything like this. And when your heart sees that, the gospel, when your heart sees it, you believe it. You believe it. You know it's true. You know it's true. Think about it. Jesus Christ 
is infinite in worth, infinite in glory, infinite in beauty. From all eternity, Christ, he's presented to us, but the reality that we see most clearly isn't in those things in and of themselves, though we should. It is in his sacrifice. That's why we hold out the gospel. It's in what happened on the cross that he empties himself of all of those things to show us his love for us. That is staggering. The reality of the cross, what Paul would say is Christ and him crucified. When it penetrates the soul of a human being, it overcomes our unbelief and it ceases to be this idealistic concept that someone's pushing on me and it becomes reality. We just know it's true. I want you to listen to what Jesus says here in John 12 about the cross and about what it is designed to do, what he was doing with the cross. John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about dying on a tree in front of Jerusalem. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is what faith looks like. This is the believing that John is talking about. It's when you see a treasure that is so exceeding in its worth, so exceeding in its beauty, that you are willing to give up everything for it. You're willing to give up everything. And Jesus is that treasure, according to John. And in his dying, he purchases your faith in him. This work of love is so powerful, so glorious, that when it grips you, when you actually see it for what it is, you're never the same. You're never the same. It's like losing your life in this world to gain a life that is fixated on Jesus He's everything to you. And we become like John in that moment. We become like John in really knowing like, hey, listen, you don't need to know my name. My name is not important. My job is not important. The things I've accomplished in my life are not important. The most important thing about me, the most important fact about me is that Jesus loves me. He loves me and he died for me. That's the single greatest fact about my life. That's faith. That's what faith looks like. When everything else in the world fades into the background like a dim, faint shadow, and Christ, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, becomes everything to us. That's the experience of trusting and receiving him. And so as we read this, the book of John, the gospel of John, over the next month and years, God willing, um, my prayer is that this reality that, that, that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God will in our hearts bear much fruit. 
That's my prayer. That's my hope. And so if your faith is in Christ Jesus, no matter how weak you may feel that it is, or how strong you may feel it is, if your faith is in him, then I would invite you to participate in communion, the Lord's Supper. And as you do, I would ask that you come to God with a heart that longs to be reminded of what it is like for a grain to fall into the earth and die. Like, be reminded what it is like for that grain to fall into the earth and die so that we could truly live. And when you take the elements, the bread, and you dip it into the cup, recognize that these are physical realities that exist in our world so that we can taste something of what his love tangibly is for us, that he gave his body and his blood for us. And we only know that that's true because we have a book where God told us. So join me in asking God to grant us eyes to see so that when we go through the Gospel of John and really all of the Bible, that the grain of the cross falls into the soil of our hearts and bears fruit. Next week and the week after and the week after and the week after that, this has been my prayer, that as we journey through the Gospel of John, we would believe these two things, that Jesus is the Christ and that he's the Son of God. And that we would believe it in the way that John does. So that you would know, like, there's nothing remarkable about me. There's nothing remarkable about any of us, the, except for the most remarkable thing in the world. And that is that we can say with John, I'm the disciple who Jesus loved. That's the most important fact about me. Not my name, not my job, not my family not my friends, not my education, not my car. The most important fact about me is that Jesus loves me. Let's pray. If we could just understand that, Father, if in our worship over the next few minutes, if in communion, Father God, as we take of the elements, Father, if we could just understand that one thing, that Jesus loves me. That would be enough. I ask right now, Father God, that by your Spirit, you would take the words that we've seen of Scripture today, and that you take the words that we glean from this book every day, Father God. God willing, we are in this book every day. And that you would infiltrate our hearts, bypass all of our defenses, our boredom, our indifference, our slowness of heart, our dullness to your glory. Infiltrate our hearts, lay hold of our souls, and take us for yourself, Father God. Don't allow us to disbelieve but command us to believe. Command our hearts to do it. We desire this, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.